Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll uh, go to our new hymn of the month. We give thee but thine own. We give thee but thine own. And uh, this should be pretty familiar, I believe, to everybody. Um, so we'll just do the whole thing. The, it's six stanzas, but it's they're basically half stanzas, right? So it's more actually like three because it's only two lines. We give thee but thine own. Whatever the gift may be, all that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. May we thy bounties thus, as stewards true receive, and gladly as thou blessest us, to thee our first fruits give. O hearts are bruised and dead, and homes are bare and cold, and lambs for whom the shepherd bled are straying from the fold. To comfort and to bless, to find a balm for woe, to tend the lone and fatherless, his angels work below. The captive to release, to God the lost to bring, to teach the way of life and peace, it is a Christ-like thing. And we believe thy word, though dim our faith may be. Whatever thine we do, O Lord, we do it unto thee. All right, and we'll continue with the catechism memory work. What sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. And the Bible memory work. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32, 1-2. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, kids can go off to Sunday school. Uh, for the hymn of the month, um, the reason we're doing We Give Thee But Thine Own is because it's um, Stewardship Sunday coming up, but really I, I kind of like to treat it like Stewardship Month um, or even maybe a month or two. Because you know the problem with Stewardship Sunday, right? When you announce what day Stewardship Sunday is, the attendance drops, right? So if I talk about stewardship every Sunday for two months, then people can't avoid it. Um, but no, uh, I'm, I'm just joking. I'm not joking, but I'm, I'm joking, right? Um, um, so we give thee, but thy note is a, is a great uh, stewardship hymn, right? We don't we don't have that many stewardship hymns, but we have some, and this is one of them. And uh, of course, uh, you know the first couple stanzas there are very clearly about stewardship. We give thee, but thine own, whatever the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone. Trust the Lord from thee, and that's actually a great starting point for stewardship, right? This is what I always say: the the starting point for stewardship is to recognize that nothing that you have is yours. Everything is a gift, right? First article of the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty. What does this mean? I believe that God made me and all creatures, my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, right? He gives me everything that I have, my family, my church, my money, my job, the shoes on my feet, the roof over my head. He gives me everything. And um, so then from there, the question is, if everything belongs to God, if he created and sustains all things, he doesn't need anything from us, but what does he want from us? He wants sacrifices of thanksgiving, and he wants broken and contrite hearts, and he wants us to live holy lives, right? And so what does that look like? It looks like us being stewards, right? A whole, all of our life is stewardship. All of our life is uh, managing what God has given us in a worthy manner, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Paul says. And so uh, we give thee but thine own, whatever the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. Um, now, what I wanted to talk about in this hymn today, uh, to kind of connect it to the sermon, so today is the Sunday of the Good Samaritan, right? We have the Good Samaritan Gospel reading from Luke. And... Um, one of the interesting things about that passage is that phrase that Jesus starts out with, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
that the man who goes that ends up beaten on the side of the road is a man who was going from biblically the heavenly city, Jerusalem, to biblically a pagan city, Jericho. And uh, many of the early church fathers and, and theologians in history have interpreted this uh, as this was someone, or at least allegorically we could say, this is someone who was straying from the fold, right? The, who was uh, in the place of the temple, in the place where God dwelt, and he decided to go down to the pagan city. Right, so the person who is actually beaten and uh, gets help from the Good Samaritan um, was actually someone potentially, right? At least, or at least allegorically, we can say, uh, someone straying from the fold, right? And here we have this this line: "Our hearts are bruised and dead." This stanza three, and homes are bare and cold, and lambs for whom the shepherd bled are straying from the fold that uh, one of the problems we have on this side of heaven is people who are born into the faith, right, are baptized into the faith, uh, have heard the good news, and then decide to go the way of the world. And what is the answer to that? Is the answer to say, well, they're done with. Off, off in the wind. There they go. Yeah. Goodbye. Never gonna, never gonna see them yeah. again. Kind of. Right. We should try and bring them back. Right. Now, God says, uh, you know, God will harden hearts, but that's up to God. Right. And this is actually what judge not, lest you be judged. This is actually what this means. That we're not, we're not called to judge someone's eternal salvation. Because if we go around judging the eternal salvation and we go around damning people, then we're going to have that same strict judgment given to us, right? Um, if we say because this person did this one thing, then they're eternally damned, then that's how God's going to want to look at us, right? And so we're not called to judge in that way. Judge not does not mean that you can never recognize sin, Right, that's a whole different discussion, but um, it it's a, it's it's good to recognize when someone has sinned and to want to bring them back, right? So, um, but anyway, that, it's interesting because so to connect the ideas of stewardship and then the good Samaritan is what of what is the person that what does the good Samaritan do? He gives that guy. You all right? Yeah, he gives the guy his his time, right? He takes all this time out of his day to take this guy to the inn and to pay for him. And he gives a lot of money, right? He gives two days wages, two denarii. Uh, and then he says this great phrase in there, whatever more you need, I will give you, right? Um, and so that's actually an image of good stewardship. It's, it's, an, image of, it's an image of mercy, but mercy is part of stewardship. Right, giving our time and our giving our time and our money and our talents to uh, the the sheep that have gone astray and to those that are in need and our neighbors around us, that's part of stewardship. 
right? So a lot of times we think of stewardship as us to God, right? We're giving our, you know, we give thee and but thy, thine own, right? Or we give money to the church for the ministry, right? Um, but we talk about it like we're giving to God, which is true. But it's also important that loving God and loving neighbor is part of stewardship, right? Because stewardship, again, is whole life, okay? So um, anyway, that's, uh, that's what I want to talk about with him. In the uh, Catechism Memory work, flip back here, uh, what sin should we confess before God we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer? But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which you know and feel in our hearts. So just a really quick overview on confession absolution. Uh, the, the main thing I found helpful in teaching this is to understand that there's basically three or, or four, sorry, forms of confession and absolution that we talk about. And all are valid, but all are different. They, they, they are all good, but they, they, aren't, they don't all provide the same thing. So uh, the first form of confession and absolution Luther uh, talks about, in, and these aren't in any particular order. I'm just listing these off the top of my head. And he talks about in that explanation as we do in the Lord's Prayer, right? So in prayer, we can confess our sins to God, and he is faithful and just to hear our sins and forgive us, right? He hears and he answers our prayer. We pray in the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses, right, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Uh, the second is, uh, let me go ahead and do... Uh, this one, again, these aren't in any particular order, is what we call uh, mutual conversation. And basically what I mean by that is that's a phrase out of, out of uh, one of our confessions, the small call articles by Luther. He says the mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren. And what he's talking about there is that fellow Christians – can confess their sins to one another and remind each other of the gospel and declare the gospel to one another, right? So, um, you know, if I go to the elders and I tell them, you know, hey, I've been struggling with this thing, and they say, Pastor, that's, that's good. Thank you for, for, uh, for being Christian with us and talking to us, and we want to remind you that Christ died for your sins, right? That would be mutual conversation and conversation with brethren, right? If if you go to a close friend that's that's a fellow Christian and and you say, hey, we're, I'm struggling with this, and they say, um, here's some ideas to work on that, and Christ Christ covered it, and you live in Him, and you're forgiven. You know, that's the mutual conversation, right? Um, not necessarily talking about like uh, if you sin against someone and then you ask their forgiveness. Uh, that's that's kind of something different. That is. That is confession and absolution, but that's um, that's not exactly what we're talking. We're talking about more the the gospel itself, the absolution of sins for for eternal salvation, right? For forgiveness. Um, so those are the the two that are kind of less formal, if you will. And then three and four; these are the more formal ones. This is uh, we're going to call it. Uh, public and private confession and absolution. 
And these are the kind of rites that you're familiar with in the church, right? So the public confession absolution, number three, uh, this is the one we do in the divine service every Sunday morning, right? Where we say, uh, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, so on and so forth, right? But it's this back and forth between the pastor and the and then as, as the pastor, I stand up at, at the end and I say, upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office, as a called and ordained servant of the word, forgive you all your sins, right? This back and forth, right, between the congregation as a whole, publicly, right, and the pastor, where we do a confession and absolution, right? Um, and, of course, the pastor's authority, we'll talk about this next week, to absolve sins comes from John 20, when Jesus institutes this as a um, institution in the church, Right? But then we also have private confession and absolution where it's just one congregation member and the pastor privately. And that looks a little bit different, right? Um, and there, you can look at the right for that in the hymnal. Um, I don't have a page number, but uh, we have a right for that in the hymnal where someone can come to a pastor and uh, confess their, their sins and par- their particular sins particularly and receive absolution for those sins. And the thing I always stress um, that is kind of different with all of these, right? So, yeah, there in, there's about a hundred of them, not really a hundred, but that's, we're back at fly season. That's a giant one, though. Yeah, that is a big one. Um, so the, different, the kind of difference between these, right, is prayer is very general, right? So as Luther says here, um, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer, right? Prayer tends to be, now, of course, you can pray for about specific sins, but um, in prayer, uh, you're, of course, like, you do hear God answer you in his word, but generally speaking, you know, God's not sending his voice from heaven to declare an absolution to you in prayer, right? Um, this is, is, is kind of private with yourself and, and very general. Mutual conversation and consolation is a little more casual, right? It's, it's just kind of the fellowship of saints. And that's, that's also good, and it has its place in time. Um, the public confession and absolution, I think... Its strength is that it's every week, right? And it is a little more specific and um, a little more impactful in that there is an ordained servant of God declaring that forgiveness to you, right? So um, it's every week and you have the aspect of the John 20 office of the keys going on. The private... The, the really the uh, beauty of the private is that you get this very specific forgiveness that is very sure uh, with the office of the keys for specific sins that trouble your conscience, right? That's, that's the beauty of, of private confession. Um, and of course, uh, the caveat we always have to give we don't do private confession like the Roman Catholics, right? We don't have a confessional booth, and more importantly than that, um, we don't 
demand that you do extra things to earn the absolution, right? It's just about being forgiven of your sins and uh, and repenting. So uh, those are the kind of four types of confession we talked about in the Lutheran Church. So I wanted to, as we're going into this catechism portion on confession, I just wanted to kind of remind you of that framework um, so that we can think about this more. The, the, the other thing to note on that, and the reason that's important is because when Luther is writing about confession and absolution in the catechism, he's talking only really about this one, right? Because that's what um, the, the public confession absolution is more of a modern invention. Um, it's not that modern. I mean, it's a couple hundred years old now, but in the history of the church, relatively modern invention. Um, but what the practice in Luther's day was, was the private confession and absolution and prayer, of course, and mutual conversation, consolation of the brethren. But when he talks about confession and absolution as a topic in the catechism, he's talking about private. So that's important to know uh, since that's what he's talking about. All right. Any uh, questions or comments on the, the hymn, stewardship, confession, absolution, anything? All right. Let's jump back into Isaiah. We have um, a couple more passages to look at, and I, I really am going to try and uh, finish up Isaiah today, I think. Did not mean to spend this long on it. Um, so we really want to go kind of speedily if we can. And uh, we're just trying to finish up the key passages. So we, we've talked about Isaiah the past couple weeks, and um, remember the big theme overall is judgment and hope, judgment leading to hope. And really the first half of Isaiah is about judgment, more or less. And then the second half is about hope, more or less. Of course, there's both in both sections, right? Um, but we've, we have kind of got through that first half of the book uh, where we've seen, um, first of all, what Isaiah really does a lot in the first half of the book, but he does this throughout the whole book, is give these messianic prophecies, right? Constantly, he's talking about this coming Messiah, this this coming uh, prince, this coming king, this coming seed, right? He uses all the different kinds of language to discuss it. So we, we we've seen the judgment, we've seen the Messiah, the need for the Messiah, and now um, we're going to get into the second half of the book, which is going to give us more hope in general. We're going to see what that Messiah is going to do, specifically in 53. And 37 to 39 is going to make some history clear for us. Okay, So that's where we are. Um, and it, notice I just have big chapters here. So I'm just going to be uh, – it's probably not going to be very easy to follow along with me in the, book, in the, in the Bible, but just bear with me. Because um, I'm just going to be skimming and jumping around in verses, but you can kind of have your uh, your finger in these chapters, and and it should it should still make sense. So remember, we know timeline wise exactly when Isaiah prophesies, right? He prophesies uh, during the kings. Um, uh, what are the four kings he prophesies during? The last one's Hezekiah, right? Um, as we get, as we're about to find out here in 37. Uzziah. Uh, yeah, Uzziah. 
Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. That's what I thought. Yeah. All right. So we know exactly when he prophesies in the in the history of Judah. And it's well before the Babylonian captivity. Right. Um, So when he prophesies all about the Babylonian captivity, it's it goes to show what prophecy is. Right. I mean, he really does tell the future in this way. Proclaim what's going to happen in the future to them, uh, which is worth noting, because as we've seen with trying to date some of these other prophets, the more modern theologians, they don't want to date books that talk about events until after the events because they don't actually believe in prophecy. Right. Mm. But um, Isaiah is great because he prophesies the Babylonian captivity, but we know exactly when he lived. So uh, that's that's kind of helpful in that way. Okay, so we get to the time of Hezekiah, and um, so here's what happens in 37 to 39. So there is an Assyrian uh, named Sennacherib, and you can uh, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and this really starts more like in 30, 36, um, but. Uh, Sennacherib uh, is an evil king of Assyria, and remember, who who's the king kingdom that destroys the northern kingdom, Israel? Right, it's the Assyrian kingdom, and so you do get this um, contrast between how Judah deals with Assyria versus how Israel deals with Assyria, right? How the southern kingdom deals with Assyria versus how the northern kingdom deals with Assyria, because the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. But as we're going to find out here, uh, Judah does not fall to Assyria, right? Judah actually uh, does better, and this is true throughout their history, that Judah does better than Israel does in their faithfulness to the Lord. Okay, so Sennacherib comes and uh, he uh, boasts against the Lord, right, in 36, and uh in 37, he threatens that he's going to come and uh, take, basically destroy the, the nation of, of Judah, right? So he sends a letter um, to he sends a letter to Hezekiah, and what does Hezekiah do? And uh, this is. I'm looking at chapter 37, verse uh, 14. And and Hezekiah received the letter, yep, from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord, right? So he he, he literally takes this letter and and spreads it before the Lord. And, and, and he prays, right? And I think we covered this um, when... When we covered Hezekiah, uh, but he, he has some great prayers in here. And then the, the Lord prophesies through Isaiah uh, to Hezekiah concerning Sennacherib. And um, he basically goes on uh, to the, the Lord goes on. I'm looking here in around verse 21 and 22 um, that. Oh, no. What, let me see here. Yeah, um, the Lord goes on to talk to Isaiah goes on to talk about things like so. If you're looking at verse 26, 
Uh, did you not hear how long ago how I made it from ancient times that I form it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruin. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. And they were as grass of the field as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it is grown. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. Um, because of your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way that you came. Uh, and then he... He, he goes on, so I want to talk about that. He goes on in verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against him. By the way that he came, by the same he shall he return, and he shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Okay, so... This is kind of a little complicated, but basically what he's saying here, and it's harder because we're kind of skipping around, is that on the one hand, Judah, you have not been perfect, right? I've known your rage against me, and I'm going to deal with that. However, I gave you the power to destroy these nations, and this nation, Assyria, they will not come into your gate. <coughs> Excuse me. They will not come into the city, right, for the sake of my... Uh, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake, I will defend the city, right? And Hezekiah, he does well, right? He listens to the word of the Lord. And it's got to be hard to listen to the word of the Lord whenever the word of the Lord says, by the way, I'm going to bridle your tongue. <laughs> um, th th there is a time when we're going to, it's it's like um, if uh, parent, you know, parents and kids are out um, at some kind of event or something and the kids are acting up, but you're not in a place where you can deal with it right then, right? And you're like, we're going to talk about that when we get home, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's kind of that's what's going on. But uh, nonetheless, Hezekiah still listens, right, in this time. And uh, even at the end of Hezekiah's life, right, okay, so um, the uh, verse 36 in chapter 37, the angel of the Lord went out and killed the Assyrians, in the camp, right? So the Lord make, does this mighty work where he kills uh, the Assyrian army. And Sennacherib departed and returned home and, and remained at Nineveh. Nineveh, remember, was the capital city of Assyria. That's why the story of Jonah is so incredible. Um, and uh, so the Assyria is taken care of. They're not defeated like Israel is by Assyria. Judah isn't. And Hezekiah, um, then Hezekiah... He, he remembers the Lord, and he's sick, and he's near death at the end of his life. And uh, so he, um, Isaiah goes to him and uh, prophesies that he's going to get to live longer, right? So this is a kind of interesting promise that we get in chapter 38, that Hezekiah is rewarded for his faithfulness in this way, that he, his life is um, extended uh, for his loyal, loyal heart and what he's done right um, and always walked in the truth, and so uh, that is a that is an interesting thing that happens there. Um, and we always have to make this caveat, right? That it's not the Bible doesn't teach the prosperity gospel, right? Not the Joel Steen like just do really good and then and then you'll you'll get rich, you know. Um, 
type of you know get rich quick scheme by uh, the Lord wants you to be wealthy or whatever type of thing. But the Bible does teach that there is worldly punishment for going against the Lord, and there is worldly reward for following His commands. Um, and basically, the way that works is that God built creation, like God created creation, right? And he made it to work in a certain way. And when you work in the way that it's supposed to work, then things tend to go better, right? Uh, That doesn't mean there's no suffering ever, right? There is. But when you blatantly go against the order of creation, then things tend to go worse, right? So um, there, there are these... Uh, sometimes these instances like this case where it seems like Hezekiah is rewarded for his good works. And in a way, that's true, right? And as Lutherans, that kind of makes us nervous. It's like, well, good works don't save. Well, yeah, of course not. That that's not. He's not being saved. He has this worldly, temporal uh, blessing for, for following the Lord. Um, that's not the same as eternal salvation, right? So... Um, but that you know, one one thing to to say is right. Good works, good works don't save, but they are good, right? That's that's that. we don't call them bad works, right? We call them good works. So yeah, Steve. I think that ties into stewardship because you know. Right. You know, yeah. You're, absolutely. Your ten percent or whatever it is you decide to do, you have to budget that. You know, it takes some thinking on your part, and then usually everything else in your life works off better right yeah no that's a great point that like in the case of stewardship right so um i always say 10 percent is a good starting point to think about stewardship it's not a law it's not mandated um there's uh in the new testament we have freedom uh of these things right but 10 percent is a good starting point and if you did decide to give 10 percent or any kind of percentage then you have to budget that and and then because you're budgeting, that's gonna probably help the rest of your finances, right? Um, if if you weren't budgeting before, right? So that's a great example, right? It's just a natural outgrowth of of doing something that's pleasing to the Lord. All right. So uh, yeah, then we get into chapter 39. Okay, so we have this big switch between 38 and 39. So 38. Hezekiah's life is extended. 39, all of a sudden, Babylon comes, right? And the Assyria, um, if, if you look throughout the history of the, this kind of goes really fast in these four chapters. But basically what happens um, in the history of the ancient Near East, do we have one of these, do you have a map here? Yeah. Is... Yeah, this is good. So if you look at this map, I don't know how well you can see it. You have up up here in the northeast, you have Assyria. In the, just in the straight east, you have Babylon or Babylonia. These two empires are, are competing in the ancient Near East at this time, right? So Assyria takes Israel captive around 730 B.C., and Babylon takes Judah captive around uh, like uh, five, like uh, 600 to 580 BC, and so about 100 years difference. And basically, what happens is 
Uh, when Assyria takes Israel captive, Assyria is the biggest empire. But what as the as Babylon grows, Babylonia becomes the biggest empire. And then what's going to happen after that is that Persia is going to become the biggest empire, right? So they're all battling over this land. Um, oh. Well, they are still battling over the land. What's what's all, what is interesting, by the way, is um, if you look at these maps, how uh, so you have if you, you can flip back to um, the, the divided kingdom, you have uh, the Dead Sea here and the Mediterranean Sea here, and you have Israel here and Ju- Judah here, and if you look at at that on these maps. It's like this much, right? It's this little spot here or this little spot here on this map. And look how big these other empires are. Um, When you think about Israel and Judah in the Old Testament, realize how small they are. (laughs) And it's this is why it's sometimes amazing the things that happen, right? When they go up again, like when, for instance, this little town of Judah, basically. I mean, Judah is its own empire, but it's like a very, very small empire um, com- comparatively to Egypt and to Babylon and to Assyria. Uh, when you look at them, it's pretty amazing when they, when the Lord uses them to defeat Assyria in a battle, right? Like in theory, in history, Assyria should just crush Babylon. But the Lord preserves them. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing in that way. Um, okay, so that's, uh, that's one point. Oh, okay, so the Babylonian, Babylon comes now, and they send envoys into Judah basically to scope it out. And what happens when Hezekiah, what does Hezekiah do? Verse 2 and 39. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, and all his armory. All that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house and all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Okay, so Hezekiah did so well with Assyria, right? And now he takes this enemy foreign nation and just shows them all his treasures. What's wrong with this guy? Right? right after he had been blessed for his faithfulness to the Lord, right? And so Hezekiah said, uh, Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and says, what did these men say and where did they come to you? And he says, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And Isaiah says, what have they seen in your house? And he says, they've seen all that is in my house. And Isaiah says, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until that day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the place, in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Now, I want to talk about that last verse especially. But, so that, but just to recap, what happens is... Hezekiah fails his duty to protect Judah when Babylon comes, right? And of course, that carries out in the rest of the kings throughout throughout the rest of the Judean, uh, Judean history. That Judah 
Judah, at, after this point, is on a fast track to Babylon taking them over, right? And and we already saw the Babylon we already saw the Babylonian captivity and destruction uh, at that point. Now I want to talk about this last verse. So Hezekiah says. So Isaiah prophesies this destruction, and Hezekiah says, and, and this shows his. It shows a great immaturity, I think, and potentially even a lack of, or potentially even unfaithfulness, right? I'm not, I'm not judging his soul. We don't know. Um, I mean, the Hezekiah is recorded as a good king, but this does show. Yeah, so he shows this kind of weakness when he says, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. He said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. And what did Isaiah ta- say to him? He said, the day is coming when it's going to be taken away from you and when, you're, when your sons and your grandsons are going to experience this terror. And he says, ah, whatever, right? doesn't matter. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be dead. That's basically what he's saying. And uh, that's kind of a horrendous thing to say, right? Like, um, don't you care about your grandchildren? Don't you care about your children and your children's children? Um, And, like, just because you're going to be gone, what about all the other people that live in Judah? Like, yes, good, you got to be a good king in this time. But what about the rest of history, right? Don't you care about them? Um, And don't you care about leaving something behind? And he basically says, no, I don't really care. I don't care if there's any treasures in the house of the Lord for them. I don't care uh, if if they're enslaved to Babylon or if they're they're not, right? Um, And that sounds like kind of a a horrendous thing, I mean, I think, but I will say, by way of application, I have heard people say similar things today, right? I've heard um, people uh, tell me things like when we're talking about the way of the world and how the world's going, like, well, at least I'm going to be gone by the time it gets really bad. I'm like, well, I won't. <laughs> My kids aren't, <laughs> you know? Um, so that that is a danger, I think. So, so different – I think I've probably talked about this before. I think that different generations – have different temptations in life, right? So, like, younger people have the temptation of lust, right? Um, I think uh, maybe more like middle-aged people have the temptation of uh, worldly wealth and and treasure, right, of uh, the idol of mammon. I think one of the temptations of uh, when you get older, um, at least in Hezekiah's case, is to kind of not care about what's the future, Right, because you do know that in one sense, well, I'm going to be in heaven, right? Um, and so uh, that's just something to think about. Did I see a hand earlier? Well, that's my point. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. All right. Um, so then, what happens in chapter between chapter 39 and 40? We get this huge time gap. So this is all before chapter 39, right? We have like Hezekiah and and before, right? 
when we get to 40, and of course Isaiah does sprinkle in their prophecy, when we get to 40, Isaiah has transported himself not only like to the point of the Babylonian captivity, but actually to the return from captivity. So it's this huge time jump where he goes from well before the captivity to completely after the captivity, right? So all through this time, he's saying the captivity is going to come, the captivity is going to come. And then in history, it does come and it happens. But then he kind of skips all that in his prophecy. Like he doesn't talk a lot about what it was like in Babylon, um, but then he's transported to this kind of after captivity in chapter 40. Uh, and there's no, I, I love it because there's no, um, he doesn't say this outrightly, right? You just have to figure it out as you start reading. Like, what, what? They're back? <laughs> they, they were gone and they're back? Uh, so that, this is kind of a, a fun thing, okay? So chapter 40, and we'll, uh, we'll just finish up 40 real quick here and then we'll, we'll be done with 40. Um, this is, of course, the great Advent chapter. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. right? And everyone thinks of the hymn. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Right? Speak ye peace, thus saith our Lord. Um, Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Right. So the captivity has taken place. She has received the punishment from the Lord's hand, from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And uh, they are now comforted, comforted my people. And now what's going to happen after they've returned? Christ is going to come, right? And John the Baptist is going to prepare the way. This is why Isaiah calls, or not Isaiah, this is why Luther calls Isaiah the fifth gospel, right? Because it's basically a story of, of Jesus. Okay, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Who's that? John, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, yeah. This is, I tricked you because I, I asked a Sunday school question, but the answer wasn't Jesus. Um, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill be brought low. Have you all, have you all ever um, listened to Handel's Messiah? Uh, it's, it's so good. Um, I love the, the uh, part that is this passage. Um, Anyway, that's beside the point. Every valley. Anyway, okay. Um, the Memphis Symphony Orchestra uh, does the Messiah every year um, at Christmas time, and they normally do a show in Olive Branch at um, the Met- the big Ma- Maples Methodist. So, um, if you think ahead, you can get tickets tickets for that. Rebecca and I will be there. So. Um, but it's, it's great. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh. You'll see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. This whole chapter is fantastic. Um, I can't. We're, we're at time, so I can't go too far into it. But um, yeah, it's so it's this great transition from the complete failure of Hezekiah just letting Babylon into uh, the house of the Lord. And then the next verse, 
after Hezekiah's like, yeah, I don't care about the future. It's the future of Judah, but it's the hope that the Messiah is now arriving and that the word of the Lord stands forever and that people are like grass. It's Anyway, it's so beautiful. All right, um, we'll leave it there. Any final questions or comments on Isaiah so far? Yeah, Steve. The uh, reference in about Hezekiah, about the sun or the level of the height of the, of the sun, Gotta add that move, move back so many paces and steps. Yeah. Is that, does that have any reflection on that? Where is this? Yeah, so um, I'm not – I haven't thought about this much. I think it's it's part of the prophecy. Um, let me look real quick here. So, I mean, what he's talking about is, Isaiah, is Hezekiah's life, that he's going to basically add 10% onto Hezekiah's life. Um, he's referencing a – prophecy there verse 7 um, I'd have to do the cross references to figure out what it's talking about Judges 6, 17 yeah we'll have to look at that next time that's an interesting question I haven't I, I never really thought about where he's getting that from but thanks for pointing that out yeah we'll, we'll look we'll look uh, next time any other questions or comments Yeah, chapter 38, we're looking at verses 7 and 8. That's not, okay. I just, I tried to look at one cross-reference really quick, but, all right. Uh, Any other questions, comments? All right, let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day. We pray that our worship today would be in spirit and in truth, and that you would open the hearts and minds of the hearers to the preaching of your word that it would be edifying uh, to all those who hear. We pray that you would continue to be with us in all our days as we uh, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.